0: Welcome back to Radio Wasteland and our guest, Andy McGrath, uh, all the way from late night uh, England for us, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, tonight we're going to be talking to Andy about Beasts of Britain. You know, this um, this topic, I th- think, Carol- A new one will, for us. It's a new one. And I think Carrie will very much agree that uh, this one is- tapping into two of my loves, one of which, of course, is cryptids, monsters, mysteries, and then the other is sort of uh, the the history of of Britain,
1: because, you know, with... Yeah. We got beasts, then we got Britain, so... Well, you the, know, I mean, I grew up reading thing. King
0: Arthur and <laughs> battling worms and, uh, you know, all sorts of that stuff, And and I'm wondering how many parallels there are between these two things, you know, but uh, let's start out, Andy, by uh, asking you, you know, um, other than being geographically located in the heart of this, you know, what really made you say like, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dig into this here in Britain, you know, what, what really made you say that?
2: Well, uh, for me, I've been in love with uh, cryptid creatures since I was a teenager, just quite a long time ago now. And, uh, you know, the usual things, Nessie, Paddy, Bigfoot, Sasquatch, all those things, McKillian um, Bimbi. And I just started searching around in my own country to see if there was a bit more than just, you know, the, the late monster stories going on. And I had an American friend actually quite a few years back, and he's kind of talking to me and saying, look, what have you guys got? You know, you've got Nessie, and that's it. That's the whole bag. And I knew there was a bit more than that, but I didn't know there was so much more. And I started searching around and I thought, you know, maybe I'll turn this into a, like a little TV series or a blog or something. And a friend who worked in TV advice, I should make it into a, a book. And I just started writing it foolishly, thinking I'll just write a book then. Um, and that's how I do most things. Just sort of um, jump in and get involved and hope. I can come out the other side with the product that I've been boasting about creating all the way through mm-hmm. um and it did it did come out and uh yeah, I've learned a few things since then, but Britain you know if you come from a place like the United States, it seems like a small country, but it's only small comparatively you know yeah, it's sure. not um sure. it's it's big if you're on foot right yeah, <laughs> absolutely and. Yeah, exactly. So um, It is like the sixth largest island of the world, isn't it? It is. Yeah. And there's so many different geographical regions of the country and so many sort of traditional races with their own history and culture as well have these legends, these myths and legends of the different types of, uh, some would say, mythical, folkloric, paranormal creatures that resemble, uh, you know, a lot of the time, animals. And I, I grew up in Wales, come from an Irish English family, but I grew up in Wales. So that's one you know, side of the, the Celtic point of view. Racially speaking, I've got the other side of the Celtic point of view, the Irish. And I live in England now. And there's so much difference within this island uh, and so much history as well that that tells you something about the people, but also something about how different cultures describe um, animals for which they have no. Uh, zoological point of reference. Uh-huh. And I think yeah. that's very interesting. A lot of folklore is like that sometimes, especially in its drawings. When you see uh, the Welsh dragon, for instance, on our flag in Wales, it has those bat like wings, which we know pterosaurs didn't have. And the, this big jaw, something that looks like a pointy nose, which could be a beak. Four legs. Okay, that's a bit anatomically incorrect. But it has yeah. a, a diamond shaped tail, a sail tail. Um, as we know that many pterosaurs had this, this, uh, this diamond shaped tail. And where did they get that from? It seems like a very odd, and it appears on lots of dragon drawings throughout the country, wyverns and, and the like, where did it come from? You know, and that's what interests me. This deep history that we have on the island, but also more importantly, these modern w- reports of creatures that resemble the same ones as we described seeing in the past, or our ancestors described. So, yeah, Miranda has his answer, but um, it all it fascinates me. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So, um,
0: you know, when I think of cryptids, you know, you were right in saying that when I think of England, I think of uh, you know, Loch Ness, and uh, you know, I think of a few others around the world, the Yeti, and stuff like that, but. Well, when thanks. I think of, uh, well, that's what I'm getting at. When I think of most cryptids, I think of them coming from the United States now,
1: mm.
0: or or at least North America. <clears throat> now, is that because of my location, or are there really more stories coming out of North America than other parts of the world?
2: No, I, I don't. I think there's more reporting coming out of North America than other parts of the world. And I... I think having some small experience now with American culture over the last few years, and and most of my interviews having been on American podcasts, and also yeah. having contacted many other people in different locations, I think um, what I like about North America, the USA in particular, is is its boldness. Mm. People, yeah, in general, no, I get you. Americans tend yeah. to be bold, not only in their um, uh, how they place their passion, you know. So, I'm I'm putting everything into this. I'm buying the equipment. I'm I'm contacting all the witnesses. I'm telling everybody this is what I do. I research cryptids. Right. That's what I see a lot over there. And I'm, I'm making it, you know, uh, financially viable a business. I'm selling t-shirts. I'm not feeling well. Oh, I should be ashamed of that. You know, that kind of thing or merchandise. Um. And I'm seeing that in the witnesses as well. That there are many witnesses who are more willing to say, "I I know what I saw, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna shy away from that because that's the truth. I'm going to hold to it. I'm going to stick to my guns. I think over here, in particular, perhaps in parts of Europe, apart from in the case of Nessie, which you know there's like a badge of honour in seeing it uh, for many people, the other uh, cryptids that we might have on the island if you report seeing one, even our, our population of big cats that we've had since the mid-70s, um, if you report seeing that, you were strange. You know, your lo- the locals, your friends, your colleagues might think you're a little bit out there, mm. Um, especially in light of some of the American scene. They might associate you with a, a fringe element or the, you know that that part of the fringe that stands out to people who don't know about the genre most right right so they might associate okay. with it with that and that did, you know a lot of witnesses that i've had over here said i'll tell you what i saw but i won't let you interview me on camera or i won't let you interview me hmm. on a podcast even with my name hidden hmm. i don't want anybody to know that i've seen this but i wanted to share it with you that makes validation very difficult because essentially right. then when you end up within this country in particular is a couple of researchers that have a lot of sightings, especially things like the British Bigfoot, um, but very little verifiable reported evidence. Sure, it ends um, up being yeah. like a hearsay anecdotal. It's almost, you could say it's secondhand in a yeah. way. Or it's secondhand yeah. because you just have somebody's word for it. Now, your researchers, you know what your gut tells you sometimes when somebody is uh, telling the truth or when they're lying or when there's some sort of mental affectation that's convincing them in that moment that what they're saying is the truth, but really something else is going on. We know that and we can feel it, can't we? Mm-hmm. But some people are so good at it. And I've had this experience several times last year. I've, been dis- I've discovered I've been lied to, where in fact the person was so convincing, it frightened me You know that they could right. they could lie yeah. so well, so convincingly. And those are just the brakes, aren't they? <laughs> sometimes you get a great report from somebody who's just been brave enough to report what they've seen, And sometimes for whatever reason, somebody needs that attention and the, you know, you're the uh, vehicle for that. So it's interesting, but I'm, I'm going off point again, like I always do. Um, yes. Well, I, I mean, our North interview Americans, on a radio show going off, yeah. is,
0: that's what we do.
2: <laughs> I'm, uh, somebody accused me, and I know I don't sound like this person, but I am, I'm aware more objectively now how um, when English people speak, they kind of stumble all over the conversation, backtrack, and stumble over the next bit as well, uh-huh. because this weird halting way I have, especially of, of talking, which I don't know why, but that's how I do it. Um, yeah, anyway, the point you are making is, are there more reports in America than the rest of the world? And yes, but just because there's more reporting, Right.
0: You know, it's interesting that you bring that up. I I had a friend who who would tell me that during the um, you know, as an American, I suffer from being an American. And that is thinking the entire world is just like us, you know, um, and that is, you know, we had the cultural revolution. Other people didn't have it quite in the same way that we did. And then also a friend of mine was telling me that during the American Revolution um, that Benjamin Franklin told us that europeans viewed us as being tobacco spitting braggarts and then um i mean a, a friend of mine a friend of mine who lived in china for the past uh, couple of years yeah i guess so, who lived in china for the past year a couple of years asked his students uh, what they thought of americans and they thought that we were all fat and had guns and wow. you know so, again so this, this, that this seems brazen, reasonable. well, no, but it illustrates that there's brazenness uh, that you're talking about, about getting the sighting out there about yeah. jumping in feet first, you know, that really makes sense and kind of rings true. It, yeah. For
2: me, actually um and I've got a lot of experience with, I, I live in London, so I've got a lot of experience with lots of different people from around the world in their original state, not second and third generation, but as they come to the country. Sure. Yeah. and. Mm-hmm it's it's I like it, it's very interesting, but actually this American brazenness to me it translates as courage, and maybe I thought it was brazen when I first started experiencing more people from um your country. of course, it's very different throughout. I understand that, but you know the various states, but now to me, it's a kind of courage that I admire, and I see in it something that we're lacking mm. and uh, you know although we we do have some aspects that I really appreciate too. I think this courage to really jump in and say this is who I am this is what I'm doing from now on until whenever it stops right. is lacking here yeah and it's that's a stereotype why, Americans
0: would have towards uh, English people would be yeah. uh, manners and reserve.
2: yeah although yeah. <laughs> my wife um, always says that English people are pretend polite and I think that's true yeah that's true of everybody I think yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah definitely I mean I experienced that in the U S too, but, um, it was a lot more genuine orderly politeness as well. So when I first flew to the U S in 2018, uh, we were, we were down, there was a big storm that year. I think around August, September, and we were down, I had to stop off in Florida and get a flight back up to Portland. And, um, the first flight that stopped in Florida, it was mostly British people. So yeah, we got off in some sort of, slightly orderly but disorderly manner nobody really waited for anybody else and then i took an internal flight and the first flight i got off it was just americans and me and everybody on that plane got up in order and let the person in front of them get their bag and get off and i was shocked
1: it's going to
2: take funny. us an hour to get off here and, um but that was also really impressive. And um,
0: uh, I, I flew recently and it is impressive. I was a little surprised. Yeah. That, uh, you know, especially after a long, long, like I've flown to I've flown to England. And especially mm. after a flight like that, you know, to see people not try to kill each other to get a breath of fresh air really yeah. gives me
2: a little hope for humanity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you guys, I mean, yeah. you guys were the polite. You guys, the Americans on my internal flights. And I took 10 internal flights while I was there almost everywhere but Philly, they were really, really, really polite. I know Boston as well. But those are the two places where I felt most at home. So I got yeah. off at Philly, airport I had to change. I went and saw these these um, Philadelphia girls, I think, at the coffee shop. And I asked some for the coffee and they said, what would you say? And I said, can I have a, like a cappuccino or something, please? And somebody said, he talks funny and gave me the cappuccino. <laughs> and uh they were rude to everybody in the line but it was the first place that actually made me feel at home Uh, that's funny you know i've lived in london so i was like oh thank goodness i can like relax for a second now because these girls are just really rude so i don't have to care everybody in philly just does funny
0: that is that is just uh, hilarious and and i guess shows you how different we can all be so in the book you know you kind of break up cryptids Mm. into um categories like beasts of the water the woods the air yeah um i really like Mm -hmm. that sort of breakup you know so maybe let's let's run with that you know um beasts of the water of of course we know loch ness and uh but Mm -hmm. there are others you know Uh, um When I think of England, of course, I think of a lot of ocean water. But are we talking oceans, lakes, or the whole nine yards?
2: Lakes Peppers? and locks, um coast as well. I mean, there's there's lots of coastal sightings. They're not as frequent as as sightings in Loch Ness, but there's a reason for that. You know, Two hundred fifty to three hundred thousand people a year go to Loch Ness. Are looking, yeah, and point their cameras at the camera, uh, their cameras at the water, and that's just a reason to have more sightings, really, I think. Um, apart from Loch Ness, on the Scottish side, there's Loch Morar, which is the next loch that has the most sightings. It's actually the deepest loch in Scotland, Loch Morin, um although it's not as big as Loch Ness. And it has some like, fantastic sightings there. And you have to remember, this, this, Scotland is really, really underpopulated. Even Loch Ness being one of the busier areas of the highlands, um, I think the, the most populated village around Loch Ness is Fort Augustus, which has six hundred residents. Oh, really? So hmm. this is—I mean, it's next to nothing. Really, really, right. next to nothing. One point nine percent of Scotland's entire landmass has urban sprawl in it. So that's—it's just a, an area with where nobody living there. So right. uh, Loch Morar—I just told you about that first. It's a thousand and seventeen feet deep. It's uh, unlike Loch Ness, it's not, um, it's not tainted with peaty, stained brown water, so it's very clear. You can see quite far into the loch. Uh, the River Moro, uh, it stretches, I think it's eight miles down to the sea. There is a, a little uh, hydro dam in the way, but you know, an amphibious animal could get around. That They to get seals in there from time to time. There has been sightings there going back to about 1887. When you say sightings, are you saying
0: sightings of something similar to the Loch Ness monster? Almost exactly the same.
2: Really? So, uh, t- just dealing with those um, oh. Nessie type sightings. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's got you know, it's a number of names as well, just like Nessie. It's got the plesiosaurid description. Sometimes sure. it's said to have some humps, uh, whale like black or dark brown mottled skin, snake like head, measuring somewhere between 20 to 40 feet long. Uh, there were some very interesting sightings I'll, I'll tell you about, uh, the mainly the, the very, very famous ones. So, there was uh, a factory boss, Alistair McKellick of Malay in Invernessia. Um, he was fishing with a group in a boat, and they saw Morak about 50 yards away, three humps moving through the water with their head underwater. They said they were left astounded, fearful about how close it had been to them. Um, he then saw it was his, his daughter and, and some, <coughs> excuse me, some guests uh, at a local hotel who saw the same thing, um, from a greater distance. Uh, but, you know, they say a lot of people are embarrassed to describe in the area that they've seen anything in the loch. Um, one of my favorite ones actually, because there's a, there's a great sketch that goes with it was from 1975 when two brothers, Charles and Donald Simpson, were driving towards Brac Arena. It's a small village there on a bird watching expedition. They were driving along the Morar River as it leaves the loch, and that flows over a narrow ridge of gravel for a short distance where it's just a couple of feet deep. It's about 3 p.m. in the afternoon, and they saw suddenly a 20-foot-long animal rise out of the water about 40 feet from their car, lurch across the gravel bar and sink into the deeper waters of the loch, they said it had smooth brown skin, like a drum. And they commented uh, they had very developed muscles on its um, powerful hindquarters, which were unmistakable as it held itself over the gravel bar. They didn't see any ears or eyes, but said there was something that looked like a trunk trailing along the back of the body, which could have been a tail, I guess. Um, and there was there's a great watercolor painting of that. And that was um, done under Donald's supervision by, by a neighbor. Now, there are many sightings in that area. Adrian Shine himself uh, from the Loch Ness Exhibition Centre, uh, who's been researching the Loch Ness Monster for 60 years, Loch Ness and Loch Moral were his two primary research locations. Now, for me, the best sighting in this area was by Robert Duff, a joiner from Edinburgh, because it's the clearest sighting. He saw it on the 8th of July, 1969. He was fishing from a boat in, uh, in Moby Bay. On the southern shore, the water was no more than 16 feet deep and crystal clear, and he spotted a monster lizard lying motionless on the loch's white leaf strewn bottom, looking up at him. Mm-hmm. He estimated it was 20 feet long with a snake-like earless head, slit eyes, and a wide mouth. Her uh, body was gray-brown with rough skin, and her limbs with three toes visible on each front foot, plus a tail. He was so unnerved by the creature that he left the area immediately. I don't blame him. Yes. I mean, (laughs) you're in 16 feet of water in a fishing boat. I mean, it can't be very, uh, very solid. When you're on those locks, and I've been on Loch Ness a few times, not so much the other locks, the the feeling of the depth beneath you is really, uh, it really gets you, especially if it's a little dark or a little lonely out there sometimes. You can feel that depth of the water. I think Loch Ness is 750 feet deep points. Lockmore is a thousand fifteen feet deep, and Morris unfortunately, really I don't have anything nice in my camp.
0: mind. I don't have anything in my mind for comparison there, but I have heard that they are just insanely deep for what they yes. are.
2: Yes, really, really deep. I yeah. mean, it, it, basically if you um if you uh if you were to to sink and drown, you wouldn't be found <laughs> for a very long time to come. I mean, if you sank properly, here. One second. Yeah. The emergency. Um. So, yes, I mean there are many, many tales of lake monsters and lock monsters. I'll give you something a little further away from Scotland. Okay. Actually, just to, to give you a little clue. Now, there's a a district in Cumbria in northern England called the Lake District, and one of the many lakes there is called Lake Windermere, and they have a creature called Bow Nessie, um, named obviously similarly after Nessie itself. Now, I really love this area. The lake really isn't as big or as deep. It might be 200, 300 feet deep in places, which is, right. you know, is reasonable enough anyway. It's but still
1: 20 stories, you know.
2: It's, it's still, still 20 st- stories. Hide a
1: <laughs> moderately sized, you know, skyscraper down there.
2: <laughs> See, but this is the thing. And so you, Andrew, you're really, or Cara, you're Cara, sorry. Kara. Yeah, you're, really, um, sorry. <laughs> um, you're really, sorry. You're really pointing out the, the uh the reality of the situation here we think that's not really deep from body of water but you know our last guy there he saw it in 16 feet of water All clearly right. doesn't need right. a skyscraper to hide so this creature there's been around 11 or 12 sightings some of them photographed since 2006. um you know, we're not really sure why suddenly there are Myths and legends, urban legends in all of the lakes in that area, going back for quite a long time. It's not really a lot of modern sightings. It does have a river, the river uh living that connects it to the sea. Again, there are some mm. obstacles in the way, but seals get into that lake as well from time to time. So, you know, there is a route. Um, first seen in two thousand six by uh, a journalism lecturer, Steve Burnet. So a straight line of broken water with three humps by 20 feet long. Uh, then it was seen in 2007 by a photographer, Lyndon Adams, who I'm in touch with. And he took some great pictures uh, from a, a, so a, an overpass called Gummer's Howe. Um, and he was really affected by the experience. He even set up a, a website for years and years researching the creature and the animal. Uh, Great picture of three or four humps in a row. You can find it online by Tom Pickles. Uh, he was kayaking, maybe all these little boating adventure things there, kayaking with um, a, a group, a company, a sort of company, Adventure Day Out. And they saw a giant dark brown snake with humps measuring three car lengths. Um, they said it was undulating, oh. moved very, very fast past him and his car, uh, colleague and, and looked like an enormous snake. Uh, seen again uh, and this time photographed by another journalist who was up to capture the changing of the seasons and she set up a time-lapse camera next to the the lake went away for the day and it was programmed to take a picture once every minute so she she set the camera and she went away and came back her name was Ellie Williams I think she was working for Autographer magazine she looked and all of the different pictures and the changing of the seasons every minute throughout the day. And suddenly she sees this strange, strange neck and head with a, a big arched hump sticking out of the water in the distance. She zooms in, it looks like a lake monster. Right. Yeah, on the camera. And she's got it's once every minute. So she, it's not a hoax. There's no evidence of anybody arriving before and placing it there or arriving afterwards and taking it away. It's just there on one of the frames, and it's gone. Oh. And it's a great picture. You know, she was using a fantastic camera. Uh, I went there. I did a little sort of teaser trailer for Beast of Britain with some friends there. We stayed there for a few days and I did some sort of night drones over the the lake. And it's interesting, but it's very touristy. Even the locals don't really know much about the monster. It's just you know, it's just a myth. It's just a rumor. So yes, you know, there's there's lots of see monsters throughout the country. Um, Okay. Go on if you like, or we can move on to something else. Well,
0: um, yeah, let me throw in here that, you know, the internet seems pretty convinced that the lock, the initial Loch Ness monster sighting that Mm. made Loch Ness Mm. famous in the media um, is one of the most famous hoaxes of all time. (laughs) The internet is pretty convinced of this yet there's all this other stuff they, that they don't seem uh, to cover, you know? So do you, do you feel that the initial sighting was a hoax?
2: You mean the surgeon's photo? Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, It's strange, really. There seems to be a lot more holes in the story of the confession than the, um, than the, hoaxed picture itself. Now, I think it's very possible it, it could be hoaxed for several reasons. Um, a lot of people are convinced it's uh, it's an act of revenge by big game hunter Marmaduke Weswell against the Daily Mail for exposing his uh, footprint hoax. So mm-hmm. he was sent up there to capture Nessie. He didn't. You know, it's a lot of attention on him at that time and everybody else. And he just got a, a hippo foot ashtray, I think, and just Made him prints <laughs> around the lock and <laughs> took pictures of it and he was exposed. And uh, I think it was his nephew, I think, is, is alleged to have been the one who was involved in making the, the submarine in Nessie with the head of a. Right. Uh, yeah. And a Patasaurus on it. Now there's something odd about those pictures though. There's more than one. First, the picture that we know is a crop picture. So the picture, the original is actually taken from distance. It still seems to be, they estimate between one and four feet out of the water. There's a dispute about that. Lots of experiments to to say where it could have taken place and, and to measure the distance anyway. Um, but there's pictures of the head in a different position, other pictures, and it's the same real. It's the same from the same photo reel, and they've never really got much attention. So they could have created two different models and photographed them, but only used the first picture. That's more than possible. But there's the other thing as well about the you know the Harley Street surgeon um, saying that he took that picture. Now, I I ran a clinic on Harley Street here in London actually for eight years and. You know, a lot of big consultants and um, people whose reputations would suffer a lot from that kind of exposure. It seems right. to me, and I'm not trying to read too much into it, but it seems to me, knowing people in that position, that even today to come back claiming you had a picture of a late monster would be detrimental to your career prospects. <laughs> people are trying right. to say that he was trying to hide the fact he had a mistress in Loch Ness, that he was there with her. But seems a very elaborate hoax. How about I was somewhere else at a different conference? <laughs> just, why, why make up this big monster story and then get your name in all of the papers in which your whereabouts are going to be examined very, very closely? That, to me, is a stretch. It's not logical, especially not for somebody like a surgeon who should have a logical mind. Uh, obviously, people do stupid things. I know that. And um, I just don't buy it. Right. um again, I don't know if it's a fake or not, but I don't buy the hoax story I see and then um you know we're not
0: too far off from uh taking a break here, but I'll ask you uh this question sticking on the beasts of the water until we take yeah. our break um the I heard of some sighting of I read some article, and the guy was saying that they had a sighting at Loch Ness. Of, of what was something more like a crab or slug thing crossing a road? Is this, oh, this the gravel one that you referred to, or
2: no? This is the Spicer sighting, I think, um, from the fifties. I'm pulling into my memory. I don't have it in front of me. I think he and his wife were driving on a hazy summer afternoon, and when suddenly they saw a large creature, rounded. Slug-like, almost. Oh. Um, it looked like it was carrying something in its mouth or had a tail that was curled into its side with something possibly in the mouth uh, crossing the road very quickly. There's been so much controversy about that. I, I often look at the, the way people describe things. When you have no point of reference for what you're seeing in your mind, you reach into your mental library to pull out the closest thing. That's why, um, you know, gorillas with the hairy man of the forest and Mm. all these different things or demons or troll creatures, you know, all the different apes and and creatures that that man didn't know about in his more um, superstitious past, you know, uh, religious and superstitious past. So you draw what you know best. You know, it all kind of had like the head of a fox with the tail of – an ass, and then you've got right. this composite creature that comes together that really looks nothing like what they saw. It's all I very like uh, it.
0: Lovecraftian, like HP Lovecraft. Lovecraftian.
2: Yeah. Remember uh, Quetzalcoatl when the Spanish came and they thought the ships were floating mountains, didn't they? Yeah. Because yeah. the Indians, because they didn't recognize their mind just said mountain, floating mountain. Huh. Yeah, yeah, that's not my true. Yeah. that's my take on that. You know, yeah especially a, he said slug but maybe it was just a big slimy creature let's move on to
0: beasts of the woods yeah um, definitely uh you know something that we all think about when we think of uh england you know of course of course you know uh the inventor of, of high fantasy in the world, a Tolkien came yeah. from there, you know? And oh, so yeah. we think of a lot of that stuff when we think of England, you yeah. know? So yeah. so what are beasts what are of
2: the woods? You know, where would you start with this? I would start with the British Bigfoot, a highly contested and very, um, very inflammatory <laughs> area of cryptozoology at the moment. I mean, it's, um, I'm both, intrigued by it and very invested in it, in the research about it. I was with a lot of the main people who were involved in the research, like uh, like uh, Neil Young and Deborah Hatswell and all those other guys. Um, it's, how can I put it? There's over 500 sightings reported. Oh. on oh. uh, Deborah Hatswell has the great map. She's the founder of British Big, uh, Bigfoot Research, her and Adam Bird. They've got a great, great map. She was a a witness back in the 80s in a place called Salford near Manchester. And um, when I first heard about it, I was like, what? Like, Bigfoot, how? This is just, it doesn't make sense. How could that get here? Of course, we used to have bears and wolves and all kinds of things. How did they get here, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And we were once connected to Europe through the Doggerland land bridge, which is an established fact now. With the... uh, sunken area between Hugh and and uh, our European cousins. Now it's very interesting. The sightings are compelling. One of the things that really stood out to me about them, and I'll, I'll give you some of them in a few moments, was that the witnesses normally didn't say Bigfoot because that's not really a big phenomenon. Yes. They would say it was a man monkey or like a giant orangutan on two legs, or it was almost like a caveman, but it was covered in hair. Mm. And that, to me, and they passed the Bigfoot on the Brain um, test, and they were just looking for somebody to talk to. And people like Deborah and Neil in the early days of this, they were very instrumental in that, in reaching other witnesses and telling them, no, you're not a crazy person. You know, you saw something as well. So I really respect that. So Deborah was really great. She shared a lot of the sightings with me. I, I got to meet a lot of witnesses and find some new witnesses too. So I'll just give you two of the sightings. That are very compelling. And the first one is in an area near me called Box Hill. I've been there quite frequently. Now, I live just outside of London on the edge of Surrey, which is a county. Very green, lots of areas, uh, AONBs, they call them, areas of natural beauty. Beautiful, wildlife areas. Not a big population. And um, in 2012, in sorry, in the area called Box Hill. there's this nice big hill, and it's, it covers, cross, crosses um, a river that has these beautiful little stepping stones on it. And then it ascends up a hill, which has these. it's heavily wooded, and has steps, big earthen steps that are hemmed in with wood. And the inclination is about 90 degrees. It's about seven or 800 feet high, and people run up it, crazy people. Uh, um, <laughs> not me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I take a walk That's up it when I go there. Um, But if I can, I try to get a car to the top and walk down. Mm. Um, Anyway, so this was near the stepping stones near the bottom of the stairs in 2012, late evening, summer, so it was still light. And the witness was running up the steps uh, leading to Box Hill on the North Downs in Surrey. Now, during the training session, she'd heard what she believed to be now believed to be wood knocking. She didn't know what it was, she just heard knocks Mm -hmm. on wood. And she finished the training. She sat down to have an energy drink on the steps. And just to describe to you the way they move these steps, they're heavily wooden, they they kind of curve around down the hill. So there's lots of blind corners. And uh, 25 minutes later, she's still sitting there, and she hears footsteps coming down the hill and thinking it was a dog walker or something like that. She just moved out of the way and expected somebody to pass her, and nobody did an unsettled feeling and then she could hear breathing felt that she was being watched and she turned around and looked over her right shoulder stood 10 meters back behind her and up the steps to her right side what she thought was a sort of ape brown in color patches of gray all over it a very human face with a flat nose and a a very wide jaw kind of out of proportion to the, the size of the head the head was domed at the top which stood out to me stood on two legs but appeared to, to slump forward slightly, um, very thick built uh, of solid muscle. Uh, and she said actually that it was frightening, the uh, the strength of it, the, the build. Um, she guessed the height was six foot plus, but she wasn't sure. It stood staring at her for about 30 seconds before turning around and walking off, still watching her. As it left, she could smell a stale farm animal type smell that lingered. Isn't that strange? Yes. That smell. Very, yeah. She didn't know to dis- about the smell, but she had the experience. That's and a very, very classic me-
1: Bigfoot sighting. Mm. Just down to the down to the details. That's mm. that's very much like the type of Bigfoot sightings you get in the, you know, in the states in the Pacific yeah. Northwest. So that's yeah, not
2: head, everything. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and the smell.
2: But again, does she say I saw a Bigfoot? No. Oh. I thought it was some sort of ape. She doesn't even know the word. It's Those sightings, they really stand out to me. There's, we have a lot of sightings just yeah. like that. There's no, the word Bigfoot does not come into it at any point. Because um, again, it's not a big thing here.
0: Well, we're, you know, in in the story, we're seeing a lot of parallels to Bigfoot. Mm. But in these sighting stories, are there a lot of... um? Is there anything that stands out as being uniquely different? Because let's say, you know, there's a lot of people who think a lot of different things about what Bigfoot Mm -hmm. is from anything from a from an Mm -hmm. animal to an interdimensional traveler. We just had a guest on talking about that. Mm -hmm. Um, But is there anything that uniquely stands out as being
1: separate of. Obviously, the British Bigfoot is, you know, much more reserved, prefers tea uh, to coffee. But, right, um, right. Uh, <laughs> but, apart from that, right, takes <laughs> milk with his tea. <laughs> exactly. Right.
0: Yeah. So, so is it pretty much verbatim? It, it it's, it's always so
2: similar. Mm, I mean, the descriptions vary in the way that we talked about earlier, based upon the person's own mental you know, comparative library of animals they can pick uh, things out of. Generally speaking, they tend to be described as either upright chimpanzees, orangutans, cavemen, or large apes on two feet. It's kind of strange the way that that occurs time and time again. The face actually in many cases is described as being almost caveman-like. A lot of them say that. but with this very wide jutting jaw, and of course, the hairiness is a, another aspect that seems to stick out. Now, there was a sighting actually that differs from that slightly. Uh, now, one of the things also I can say is it tends to be smaller than the American Sasquatch. Hmm. The top oh, okay. um, height I've received from anybody is eight feet. And even hmm. that I think was, was overblown because of shock. Uh-huh. You know, I think sometimes something that might seem eight feet to your mind is maybe around, you know, top of six or early seven feet tall. Oh. Uh, so most of our sightings seem to be between about five and eight feet at the oh. top. Uh, no bigger, no bigger at all. Now I'll just give you another one just to to uh, throw it out there. There's, um, there's a, a great, uh, A great, great sighting that was actually made by a primate keeper of 37 years. And he worked at the very famous zoo here. Uh, I won't name the zoo, but he um, worked there for a long time. He was actually nearly beaten to death by a a chimp, actually, in his time there. And was retired early because of it. And he and his brother, they used to love going to Scotland and wild camping because it's it's not illegal to wild camp if they can just camp wherever you want and uh, sure. they would take small arms and egg and some things and, and shoot rabbits and sort of live off the land a little bit for a, you know, a week or so. So again in 2012 um, he and his brother they were up in a uh, rural part of Scotland in a place called Abernethy Forest in Strass Bay in the Scottish Highlands. Uh, not really too far as the crow flies from Loch Ness and but part of the um, uh, the old Caledonian forest that used to go across the whole part of that country. They got up early to hunt first light and they made their way to the, you know, the rabbit field as they were calling it to, to hunt and get some, some breakfast. Um, as they got close to the tree line, they they headed out off towards a huge blackberry bush that they'd noticed the night before. And, you know, he was being careful, but he kept his brother behind him because he had a very heavy footfall. And after a few steps, he, he can't hear his brother anymore. And he turns round and sees this astonished, shocked look on his face. His mouth is open, his eyes are, you know, uh, staring past him off to the blackberry bush. And he looks over and what he sees there is a dark figure crouching down with his back to him um, about 50 feet away. He said, crouched down, it seemed to be about five foot two. It looked like it was eating berries on a bush and its you know, shoulders were moving in that kind of way. It raises its head a little, obviously hears them, turns slightly towards them and then tilts to one side as if listening. Then stands up and turns and looks at them. Now he said it must have been seven to eight feet tall, covered in jet black hair all over its body, except for the upper chest and face. Skin was very dark, except for its bottom lip, which looked pink. Had a wide nose and large eyes, but its uh, uh, features reminded him of uh, an older bonobo chimpanzee, but um, with a much flatter face, especially around the mouth, so less of a muzzle. He said it was going bold on top. Interesting detail. Uh, but to his eyes, he wasn't—you know—he wasn't looking at some sort of manape. He was looking at an ape just one he'd never seen before he said it was four feet across the shoulders longer hair on the forearms and the chin and he's never been so scared in his life and this is the guy that was nearly beaten to death by a chimpanzee yeah
0: that <laughs> is exactly moving, yeah. that is exactly what i was thinking through this whole yeah. thing you know <laughs> to yeah. to be beaten almost beaten to death by a chimp for one it's yeah. just absolutely <laughs> uh well, they say that the equation for comedy is tragedy plus time. Yeah. So I guess I'm allowed to laugh okay. a little bit. But, no, you know, for this guy to have this experience after that, that is just hilariously tragic. Yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah. Like he took a beating from the kid, essentially, and now the dad's right. going to get you. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah,
0: that's hilarious. That's totally yeah. funny.
2: Um, but he was very, I mean, he became, uh, I think he's kind of dropped off the radar a little bit now, but he became a researcher after that. Oh, and right. went on to, to meet other witnesses and uh, take other great sightings because of his bold step to say, this is what I'm doing, mm-hmm. um, which I think is, is very admirable. But I'm, I'm not sure what happened to him. But I think maybe the pressure from the zoological community was there to say, look, what, what are you talking about this Bigfoot thing for? You know, you need right. to step right. back and and be a professional again. and right. He's retired. Give him a break. Peer pressure. He had, yeah. eh, as far as I remember, he had little contracts with certain channels as a consultant, herpetologist, primatologist. And, you know, right. I'm not sure. I'm just assuming that was the case. You know, this is a tough, a tough genre to be in. Uh, even, even for those who believe in it, there's a lot of conflict. And, um, I often wonder if
0: there's any slapback, to my day job of anybody researching me online and finding out that, that this is how I spend my waking hours outside of working. But, uh, you know, but um, hopefully you, there's something to be an American, like you said, that they all have their own little weird hobbies and, uh, I hope so. Maybe they'd like mine to, too. I don't know. Don't
2: disappoint me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're all bold now. It'll all be that way. Um, look, I, you know, the thing about generalizations, right. Is it all generally true? but yeah. not of the individual. And um, you know, I, I know that enough. I, my wife is from a different country and, and it's just nice to see the perspective uh, to go in sometimes, you go in with a foreign exemption. I always tell her she has a foreign exemption here in England because she's foreign. She's allowed to see what she thinks because nobody expects that she'll just talk and read between the lines. Wow. So she can reboot the computer and just say, actually, are you saying this? And they'll right. go, oh, no, I didn't really mean that. But they did, of course. <laughs> Do you mind my quiet. asking
0: what country she's from? Yeah, she's from Israel. Israel. So, oh, uh, that is quite you know, a different perspective.
2: It is. I mean, yeah. it's, a, it's a fantastic country. Then that's a place to really change your mind about what your expectations are when you get there. Because right. it's just not how you think it would be. Because we just see, it all, we see we've seen it on the TV all our lives. Right. right. And then you get there and think, this isn't like what I saw at all. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm really curious about there because
0: it's yeah, such an old culture and such a new country. Oh, it's yeah. a weird combination of um of things, you know. You it's know, so uh disturbing. before we before we run out of time, yes. uh, you know, let's move on to beasts of the air. Kara has Ooh. uh suspicions that uh some of these are gonna go in the uh realm of flying serpents. But uh let's, okay, yes. let's see what uh Let's see what you bring into the table, you know? Okay. You think of beasts of the air. What's the first thing that you think? Here in, uh, in in North America, you know, I think we think of Thunderbirds probably as the first yes. beast of the yeah, air. probably. Yeah. Maybe Mothman, uh, maybe some other sightings
1: like that. Um, yeah, the Jersey you, Devil, that kind of thing.
2: What comes yeah. to you first? Well, in the UK, the most famous uh, beast of the air is the Alman of Mornin. Uh, or the Death Raptor, as its nickname. Now, it's very interesting. This sounds it, amazing. I've mm. seen a lot of comparisons <laughs> between this and now and uh, Mothman. So continue. You know what? On. I think there's there are a lot of similarities between the presentation, uh, at least some of the um, the witness sketches. Now, he Man um, of Mournham was, was, first reported in the the nineteen seventies. It it's, it comes from a place. Um, called Mornin, and it was first sighted Mornin Old Church in Cornwall. Cornwall's in the far southwest of England. Cornwall is actually an old Celtic country that has its own language, uh, which is almost extinct now. But it's a very old, very rural place full of lots of uh, myths and folklore and and history and things like that. And that seems to, to my mind, have an effect on, on the locals as well. But this was first seen by Two children who were aged nine and twelve, they claimed to have seen a birdman hovering above the Tower of an Old Church in Cornwall. Um, the young girls were understood to have run away and reported it to the police. Uh, whilst at the police station, they were taken to to separate rooms to give their statements. And Allegedly, mm-hmm. you can see the sketches online, sketched exactly the same creature. Uh, and they were holidaying in the area, and they and their families left shortly afterwards. Another sighting of this creature occurred when several witnesses saw a large man like Al sitting on a large branch in a pine tree. They thought somebody was playing a prank on them until the creature flew off. Um, Now, curiously, and this has happened a few times, apparently, they claimed to hear a crackling sound like static electricity as it was leaving. There have been other sightings over the years uh, around the churchyard involving people usually seeing red lights uh, floating over the church roof. Uh, the descriptions of the creature, it's five to six feet tall. It's a gray-brown owl with red glowing eyes, wingspan 10 feet across, uh, with um, uh, pencil-like talons, and it's said to emit a, a screeching or a hissing noise. So, and the body, is the body humanoid or owl uh, it, It's upright. Avianoid. It's upright, <laughs> but I don't... It could be humanoid, but I, I'm wondering if, if... The upright nature of an owl, anyway, is has led to that humanoid description. Whereas mm-hmm. in fact, it was just large and upright. Mm-hmm. It's not really described very well. Um, I've always wondered if it was an eagle owl or something, just a very, very large eagle owl, seen by. I mean, they are—they don't—they're not from this country, but they are—they are sighted here now again. Um, seen by very surprised people who mm-hmm. weren't expecting to hey. see that kind of creature? I don't know. But the red glowing eyes <laughs> do present a problem. Right. Like yeah. where, does also, the,
0: where, does red, where does glowing eyes really exist outside yeah.
2: of the ocean? Yeah. yeah. What do we have <laughs> bioluminescent eyes, right? I mean, lots of right. cryptids reported with them. But then there's the, the possibility of, um, you know, lights, that they right, um, Like
1: refractive
2: eyes. Yes, Lots of well, animals have this. But. They have that, where it appears to be more red car, right, than white. Yeah, exactly.
1: It It is interesting, though, that, that these sightings are so similar, again, to, you know, the sightings of the Mothman in yeah. Mount Pleasant and in Chicago. Uh, and uh, so if there is a natural explanation, you know, maybe it's something similar in, in both cases, but... Uh, but well, specifically the in the case of eyes, are hard to explain. <laughs> yeah, yeah, specifically
0: yeah. in the case of Mothman, there seems to be so much paranormal to it that takes it right. half, well, half the time out of yeah. the realm of being encrypted and into the realm of paranormal. You know, in the case of the Owl Man, is it is there any associated uh, paranormal activity, or is it uh, mainly just cryptid style sightings?
2: I think the cryptid star sightings. The most paranormal aspect of the Owlman, of course, is is the 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 collector of that sighting, and uh, who is Tony? Who was Tony Doc Shields? You remember me? Remember him as the the Wizard of the West, the guy who thought he could conjure Nessie, and even trying to pass off a picture of a Nessie head and neck, it was, which is comically nicknamed the um I think the Muppet Nessie. Uh, from mm-hmm. the, I think from the late. I have not heard before. of
0: this, but I can tell you that that is what I'm looking into tonight. You should look up Tony Doc
2: Shields. He was a, you know, essentially a, a conjurer, a con man, um, who travelled around the country with his family, a performing family, doing a very weird show. And um, he's actually, I mean, very involved in many cryptozoological organisations here still, and and even. I won't say who by, but even vaunted by the head of one of these big associations as a father-like figure mm. you know, and his greatest influence. So it just goes to show sometimes where the authors of these things, you know, these sightings become tradition and history. But I'm very interested in finding out where they came from sometimes and, and how it's uh, morphed into fact over time, you know, without looking at the, the source. It couldn't be very well be true. He was well known at that time for collecting Lake Monster stories, and um, he didn't so in Ireland very much, and and other things. He was also allegedly somehow involved in the Morgaur picture, uh, which is one of the Lake uh, Sea Monsters spotted around Cornwall. So, who knows? You know, there's there's a lot tied up in that. There is another very interesting, different flying cryptid that was spotted in Kent in 1963 by four teenage friends walking home from a party in the county of Kent. Now, Kent is like a very flat, marshy, boggy area. There's forests and things, but it's it's in the south uh, southeast of England, not far from here, where, where I am, that this, and just very flat and marshy and, and sparsely populated. Um, so, some friends were walking back uh, from a party in the County of Kent and they saw a mysterious flickering light descend into a nearby field in Sandling Park. It made its way into some trees at the edge of the park and the four teens then noticed a rustling in the brush and were shocked uh, when a figure emerged and waddled towards them. They described it as looking like a bipedal headless bat, completely black and around five feet tall with big webbed feet and wings on its back. One of the witnesses was convinced that it didn't have a head. That is you know, freaky. That is. <laughs> and
0: there's something about the boggy and swampiness of it that makes it all the more
1: yeah.
2: Uh, yeah. you know, tantalizing to the imagination. It's a spooky place to be at night, Kent. I've been out on the the, the marshes and different places there at night, and it's uh, you on know, little expeditions, and it's just unpleasant. You just feel exposed all the mm-hmm. time.
1: Again, very similar. Mothman was often described as have, as not having a visible head, just having the yes. eyes on the torso. The and some many of the winged humanoid sightings in Chicago in the last few years have been uh, described as uh, being bat-like rather than bird-like. So yeah. again, that's that's very interesting. And and that's a thing where it's like it's a little harder because if it's a bat-like, there are no bats of, of that size. Whereas no. there are some, you know, very large birds. Right. So.
0: Yeah. I have too, seen a flying fox, though, at the zoo, man. And that thing is mm, freaky. Huge. Okay.
1: Those. I Yeah. I don't know if you have flying foxes can <laughs> uh, <don't>. Kent. <laughs> well, but we don't, don't do have know, a bear either. But, uh, exactly. but I do know that,
2: that even a flying fox uh, that could appear to be five feet tall couldn't waddle towards you on its right. feet. Yeah. Upright. Yeah, that's they true. do that. So it it excludes that now.
1: It it doesn't fit. Yeah. yeah,
2: I mean, these are just, these are sightings. They're classic. Uh, I've started to call it, you know, I was calling cryptozoology for such a long time and searching for so much evidence. I've actually started to call it modern folklore Mm -hmm. because essentially I can't prove what people are telling me. And yet some of the sightings and some of the stories are so compelling. And so are the witnesses. And I think, well, so it's happened. It's modern, but it's still kind of folklore. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's what we're dealing with here. Yeah, like urban
0: folklore. You know, urban myth doesn't really do it justice because of the, no. yeah folklore. I like the word. I like the word. Um, you know, what about what about dragons and and okay. flying serpents and such? Okay. Uh, you know, dragons.
1: Of course, is that make... actually a thing in in Britain? I I thought yeah. I read about you know sort of serpent. Type UFO sightings in, in Britain.
2: I don't know. I don't know if that's what really was a thing. It, there is. I mean, there's lots of UFO lore here, but I, I actually don't know anything about that at all. I don't step mm-hmm. into anything, any any uh, area that I don't think could possibly be an animal. Mm-hmm. So I sort of try to stick to that, which is a little restrictive. But on, on the on the search for unknown animals side of things, that's where I am. There were sightings that appear to be of pterosaur-like creatures. Um, one of the most recent ones was in 2017, and it was witnessed. Uh, there were two pterosaurs witnessed by a lady living in a rural area in Woodchurch, Shropshire, and she claimed she was first alerted to the presence of the creatures by a strange screech that sounded like mm. nothing she'd ever heard before. And after hearing the street, screech, sorry, I can't, I can't look. She became aware that the sound was coming closer from across. Away way behind some trees. Uh, she was shocked to see two pterodactyls flying side by side. They passed the trees and flew off fast until she lost sight of them in the clearing between some woodland and houses. She describes them as being much bigger than the biggest heron she's ever seen, with large beaks, leathery wings, both grey in colour. A few days later, a 13-year-old son came running in from the garden claiming he'd witnessed a large bird with bat-like wings that made a strange screeching sound. When she showed him a picture of a pterosaur he said yes that's what i saw so that's one of the most recent but there are many uh, pterosaur like sightings around the country uh there's another place called uh, uh the air valley in west Yorkshire, and there's a wooded area there known as the devil's punch Bowl. so in september 1982 uh, interesting they're both in september these sightings actually um, there was a, a chap there uh, who saw a prehistoric looking creature flying low and erratically on large bat-like wings. Uh, it was hmm. also witnessed by a resident of nearby Eldwick who described a gray creature with a pointed beak and short legs. And then, same year on the 15th of September, it was spotted again by a, a man walking his dog in a place called Pudsey. Uh, the witness, after hearing a large, uh, loud scream followed by a low groan, Feared a mugging was taking place and went to investigate. Did the same sounds repeated again from a nearby rooftop and looked up to see where the emanated from, only to see a, a tall bat winged, bird like creature perched upon a neighbor's roof, towering over the chimney pots. He it he was making a screaming call with his beak open, and a grunt with his beak closed, it launched itself from the roof, and its weight caused it to drop a little below the level of the roof. And then a slow wing beat carried it off into the darkness. And he thought it was about eight feet across across the wings.
0: Awesomely terrifying. You know, I can mm. tell that we've barely scratched the surface here. You know, we we've covered, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, basically Nessie similar sightings, uh, Bigfoot of Britain, uh, you know, some... Uh, but unfortunately we're coming up here on the end and man, yeah. I would love to have you on again so we can dig into some more <laughs> of these, but uh, love
2: uh, next time we... werewolves and black shooks and trolls, will do the whole oh thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, <laughs> we're going to schedule that yeah. immediately, but before we end here, I <laughs> well, want to make sure people
1: have got to read the book.
0: Yeah, yes. <laughs> and that's the deal. Before, before we leave here, I want to make sure that the audience knows where they can get your hands on uh, your book, Beasts of Britain, by Andy McGrath, if you're searching for it. But uh, where, where do you suggest they go to find this book?
2: Well, it's on Amazon. So it's on Amazon paperback at all platforms across the world. Um, Kindle, unlimited reading, and also in the lender's library. So if you've got it and you're part of a lending scheme, you can lend it to a friend for free. Oh. Read it on Unlimited for free. Uh, I've made it as cheap as possible, so I, I do want people to have it. It's not, you know, it's not something that's going to make my career, so I want it to be right. as cheap as possible so you can have it if you want it. Um The next one I'm working on will be coming out in the summer, Beast of North America. Uh-huh. That will be the next title. I'm also... If the coronavirus uh, relents and allows me, I will be coming to the U.S. to do some conferences this year through the Corridor 13 agency, and that's a Russell Court from Expedition Bigfoot, that's his agency. So he should be bringing me across, um, as I say, if the virus relents and allows some of us, some of us to travel to your, your lovely country. Let's hope it does. All right. So if you're
0: searching for it, you've been listening to Andy McGrath here on Radio Wasteland. The book is called Beasts of Britain, Beast of Britain. And uh, be sure to look it up. Once again, his name was Andy McGrath. Thank you, Andy, very much for being on the show. Man, I hope to have you on again because we barely got down the list. Mystery of big cats, trolls, werewolves, shucks. There are so many other things that we could hit. And I hope we get to hit it again.
2: Thank you both so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you.